God, we've gathered together this morning to sing praises to your name, to listen to your word spoken, to just speak to each other words of encouragement and hope. And it's good to be reminded that those things can be found in you, that we've come in this room this morning with hearts that are heavy, needing that hope, that encouragement from you, needing healing from the way that we've been beaten up and banged around by the world, by the circumstances of life, that we can find those words of encouragement, those words of hope from you, from each other. Some of us, God, have come in the room this morning and our hearts are full with gratitude, with thanksgiving for the way that you've been so faithful in our lives this week. And so we just come together this morning as people who love you. Some of us just have questions. And we meet you here. And we trust you. God, through the songs, through the word, through this community of faith to meet us and provide what we need. And we wait on you for that, God, knowing you'll provide. And we thank you. We praise you. We adore you. We love you, God, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Whoever said that life is a two-way street may have been on to something. You know, I mean, it seems like our relationships, our careers, our institutions are built on this principle of if you do X for me, I'll do Y for you. I mean, everything in our world seems to demand a two-way relationship. It's conditional. If you love me, I'll love you. If you give something to me, then I'll give something to you. If you serve me, I'll serve you. Conditionality plagues us at every turn in our lives. And it holds us hostage. It keeps us enslaved to fear, to reservation, to insecurity. The talk of owing, of deserving, seems to be written into the fabric of our human nature and our civilization. It's how the world works. Thankfully, grace isn't from our world. It's otherworldly. God's love is different than our love. Our love is two-way. It's conditional. God's love is one-way. It's unconditional. And it's this kind of love, God's love, that can change our hearts and can set us free. Well, good morning, everybody. As Lisa said earlier, we are going to launch into a new series this morning titled Pursued. And in it, we're going to look at the Old Testament book of Hosea. I'm not going to ask how many of you have ever read the book of Hosea because I'm assuming it's all of you. It's not. Uh, and we're going to look in, that, in this series at the relationship between the author of the book, Hosea, and his wife, Gomer. Throughout the Bible, there are dozens of famous and infamous couples and powerful love stories, from Adam and Eve to the song that we just heard, uh, written by Leonard Cohen, uh, about David and Bathsheba, Samson and Delilah. And yet, 
of all the love stories that books in the Bible that books have been written about and movies made of, nobody's ever tackled the relationship of Hosea and Gomer. Maybe it's because the name Gomer immediately adds a little bit of funk and offbeat vibe to the story. (laughs) It's a cultural thing for us. And even though the opening lines of the book of Hosea bear some resemblance vaguely to the movie Pretty Woman, it's nothing like the movie, trust me. Hosea was a prophet. He was a messenger of God. And in many ways, prophets were not unlike preachers, teachers of today. Often, God would ask the prophets to do something symbolic that would go along with their message, kind of an object lesson that would help people listen to the message that they were going to give. He often would ask them with that act to do something that would sometimes cause them embarrassment. Like when he asked Isaiah to deliver his message, walking barefoot and naked through town. That will not be a part of this series for which all of you can be grateful and spend the rest of this series trying to get that image out of your mind. Be more like Gordon than me, just to be clear. Sometimes the act would cause a significant inconvenience for the prophet. Like when God said to Jeremiah that he needed as a part of his message to the people to travel back and forth between Israel and the Euphrates River carrying a linen sash. Long journey, painful journey. And then sometimes it could even cause discomfort or significant pain to the prophet as he delivered the message, like with Ezekiel. When God said to Ezekiel that he had to deliver his message laying on the hard ground, first on his right side, and then at specific points in the message, flip to his left side and deliver the message. And he did this over an extended period of time. It was quite painful. Hosea was unique among the prophets, though, in that the majority of his adult life was the object lesson. And it was really interesting. Because it started like this. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, Go and marry a prostitute. I think that may trigger for some of you a desire to start reading your Bible. Because you had no idea anything like that was in there. I'm not, not reading from Fifty Shades of Grey. This is in the Bible. God asked Hosea to do something he had never asked any prophet or person to do before. Never would ask any of them to do again. Go out and marry a full-fledged, card-carrying prostitute. Now, if I'm Hosea, i got some questions at this point. Like, did I eat something weird for supper last night? Did I drink too much? Is my prophetic network server down? Because I'm getting some bad communication from God. God didn't say, go out and convert a prostitute, make her a believer in God, and then marry her. Not what he said. He said, go out. Pursue a prostitute. I think I've read some stories in the headlines where it seems like pastors got that message from God, but they didn't really. Go out and pursue a prostitute. Some of you will get that later. (laughs) Pursue a prostitute. Find her. Woo her. Convince her to settle down with one man 
That would be you. Marry you and raise a family. That's a tough sell. But God's not done with Hosea. That's just the first part of verse 2. He has more news for Hosea, and it ain't happy news either. God says, I want you to marry this prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. Got your attention yet? This is just the first couple of verses of a 14-chapter book. I think a little background information is in order to help you understand, help us all understand, why God would command Hosea to do this. Throughout the history of ancient Israel, there were few eras that were more confusing or turbulent than the one in which Hosea and his contemporaries prophesied. Hosea began his ministry under the reign of King Jeroboam II. He was a strong and capable leader, the likes of which Israel had not seen since David and Solomon. As Dickens would say, it was the best of times and the worst of times in Israel. It was an age of luxurious materialism, freedom, national security. It was a great time for the people. And yet the prophets, Hosea, Isaiah, Amos, Jeremiah, and others knew that it was also the worst of times because the hearts of the people were empty. There was a lot of religious activity, but the people had lost their devotion to God. Their religion was simply an empty shell. After Jeroboam died, the empire declined rapidly, and the people eventually were conquered and enslaved by Assyria, a country to the east. And in that desperate situation, knowing they were about to be put into slavery, the Israelites grasped that anything that might save them from the coming destruction, anything except God. Hosea became God's messenger to this confused, frantic nation in its final days. He taught against their syncretistic faith, which simply meant that they took any worship of any other gods and combined it with the worship of the one true God they had been worshiping ever since they were freed from slavery in Egypt hundreds of years before. Hosea taught that this syncretism was an affront to their exclusive covenant with God. God chose Hosea's marriage to Gomer, the prostitute, to be a vivid illustration of their deluded, polluted faith. God said this will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. Hosea's pain would run deep all throughout his marriage. He'd remain absolutely faithful to Gomer and in so doing would serve as a model of God's faithful love for us. Gomer, on the other hand, would continue a life of prostitution. And as the story progresses, you find in the middle chapters that at the lowest point, Gomer has actually left Hosea. And he has to go to the town square to the slave market and he has to buy Gomer back. It's a humbling, humiliating experience 
for this man of God, this prophet, to have to go buy his wife back. And it's a foreshadowing of Christ's death for us that bought us back for God and paid for our sins. Adding to the pain, Gomer's going to have three kids, the first of which is the only one that Hosea fathers. Every one of the children is given a symbolic, tragic, prophetic name. Jezreel is going to send a message to the king's dynasty that murders committed were about to be avenged. Loruama. Now, wait, I'm just going to do a little side note here. I have no idea how to pronounce that name. Just a confession. But I learned a long time ago that if you come up on a biblical name and you don't know how to pronounce it, and you just say it fast and convincingly, people will believe you. (laughs) So just a little tip for you. If you're ever reading something in a Bible study or you have to read a passage out loud, just say it fast and convincingly. and People go, wow, you know your Bible. Okay? So that's what Gordon and Darren and I do. We just practice until we say it fast and convincingly and you go, wow. Okay? So that's all my Bible education taught me. Loruama, which means not loved. How do you like to grow up with a name like that? Not loved. And that told everybody that God was removing his love from the nation because of their disobedience. And loami, which means not my people. Kind of like a Greek parent saying to their kid, you're dead to me. What that meant to the Israelites was that they no longer had a special place in God's heart because of their unfaithfulness. So if we put those names in a contemporary context, it would be like naming your three kids payback, unloved, and unwanted. We've got a happy family here, don't we? So why did God do all this to Hosea? Why did he tell him to name his kids this? Why did he tell him to marry a prostitute? I mean, a prophet's life, if you read the Old Testament, prophet's lives were hard enough. Why do this? Because God wanted Hosea to speak from a unique perspective, different than all the other prophets, to feel God's love for his people, to feel the rejection that God feels when we walk away from his love, and to bring all that pain and frustration into the message he would deliver. And the result, when you read the book of Hosea, is that you get a very raw picture of God's loving, relentless pursuit of us to save us. The picture is often so drastic that it makes people uncomfortable. Commentators and theologians have tried to soften the message of Hosea through the years. Some have tried to say, it's actually just a parable. Gomer didn't exist. Hosea was just telling a story. (laughs) Others have said, well, really, when you understand it, Gomer wasn't a prostitute at the start. She made a mistake and went into prostitution. You know what? Read the book for yourself. It ain't that way. God said, go marry a prostitute. She's going to stay a prostitute. She's going to have children in prostitutes. It's there. I actually selected a translation that softened the language to prostitute. That's the softest translation of what she was. Email me. I'll send you the harsher one. Here's the message of Hosea in its clearest form. The entire book can be summarized like this. No matter what we do, no matter how sinful we are, God still pursues us. He romances us. He stalks us. 
He stakes us out in radical grace. When we run away from God, he pursues us. He comes after us. He calls us. And even when we are full of pain and hurt, he can still find us and heal us. Now, that doesn't match the picture that some of us grew up with of God or that some of us have right now. Sometimes we think of God like a cop sitting by the side of the road waiting to catch us going over the speed limit. You ever have that image of God? A few years ago, I was pulled over on Interstate 90 doing 79 in a 55, which I think is perfectly in that acceptable gray zone. Just saying. (laughs) I was frustrated because there were a lot of other people on the road going faster than me. You with me? Feel my pain? I happened to be the only SUV in a long line of cars, and he picked me out. It had nothing to do with the radar detector that was on my dash. Don't think so. I think he just was waiting for me, watching, trying to catch me doing something wrong. And I was just in a gray zone of, you know, 79. I was only 24 miles an hour over the speed limit. You ever feel that way about God? Like he's just watching, trying to catch you doing something wrong? and then punishes you. Some of us have that image of God and may have grown up with that in our religious background. Maybe more common is that we treat God like a used car salesman. Now hang with me on this one, okay? Because you may have not thought of God as a used car salesman with that plaid jacket and the goofy mustache and all that. But when we do that, we treat God like it's a transactional relationship. When you deal with a used car salesman, they're trying to get something out of you for as little as they can give. And to be fair, we're doing the same thing, aren't we? We're trying to get that car for as little money as we can. So we're in this transactional relationship. We negotiate. We compromise. And eventually, we reach an agreement that satisfies both of us. And we walk away with an obligation to each other. They're going to provide a car. We're going to provide some money. And we're both at some reasonable level of happiness with the arrangement. Right? You tracking with me? When we do that with God, what we have created is a religion, not a relationship. Here's why. Because in that particular scenario, what we've done is we've said, God wants certain things from me. He wants me to go to church. He wants me to read my Bible. He wants me to pray. Fill in the blank however you want to. And in exchange, I want certain things from God. I want a good job that's fulfilling, provides an income for my family. I want a happy marriage. I want good health. You fill in the blanks on the other side for yourself as well. You're developing this transactional relationship with God. We do stuff for God, and we expect God to do stuff for us. Maybe it's not material stuff that you want. Maybe you filled in this side with, I want God to forgive my sins and take me into heaven when I die. Now, none of this stuff is bad stuff in and of itself. But if our approach is that I do certain things for God and then he's obligated to do things for me, 
then we're approaching God with that religious car salesman attitude, and we're off base. We're not doing things for God because we love him. And we're not accepting the things he does for us because he loves us. We've altered the relationship. We're negotiating a deal with God and trying to put him in our debt. Changes everything. There are major problems with treating God like that. One of the biggest ones is we don't have any room to negotiate with God. The Bible says that God created everything and he owns it all. So we don't have room to negotiate to start with. Approaching God with that negotiating standpoint is like borrowing your neighbor's lawnmower and then trying to sell it back to him when you're done. You're not in a position to do that. You don't own anything anyway if you have a biblical worldview. The biggest problem with it, though, is it distorts the nature of God in our eyes. It paints a picture of a God who is reluctant to give us anything at all. Paints a picture of God who wants to grind us down with constant negotiations, demanding that we adhere to the minutiae of a legally binding contract. Paints a picture of a God who would only give us forgiveness and eternal life because he needs something from us in return. So therefore, he has to barter with us, to bargain with us. That makes God stingy, petty, capricious, and indifferent. And that's not the picture the Bible gives of God. And that's not the picture that Hosea gives of God. It's a picture that we see in the Bible and in Hosea that we'll see over this series of a God who relentlessly loves and pursues us. Much like Hosea pursued Gomer in spite of the pain and the betrayal that he received. God didn't choose a cop or a car salesman or any other image. He chose for a picture of his interaction with us a marriage. And Hosea is the first time he uses that image and it's used throughout the rest of scripture. He chose that to describe his interaction with us. And I think it's a great image, partly because relationships are challenging and they take work. I'm told that on Facebook, there's more than a billion people now. How many of you are on Facebook? Yeah, quite a lot of you. If you've never been on Facebook... One of the things you do when you go in and you set up your account on Facebook is you start listing out your friends, your family, people you know, and you get to define your relationship with that person. So you put it out there for the whole world to see. This person's family, this person's a friend. And when you get down to the closest relationship, you get to tell the world what this relationship is. Oh, we're in a committed relationship. We're in an open relationship. We're dating. And then the one that I love in that choice of 11 is just two simple words. It's complicated. (laughs) You know what? If you choose that for this one relationship that's closest to you, I guarantee you, if it wasn't before, you post that for the world to see, it's going to be complicated from that point on. It's complicated. Got any relationships like that in your life? 
it's complicated. Not really sure where you stand with the person. Not sure you want to make the relationship public. You struggle for words to define it. Or maybe the relationship changes every day or every hour. It's complicated. Can't really define it. Honestly, I think there are a lot of people who have an it's complicated relationship with God for a lot of reasons. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and your faith has just kind of stalled. You're not growing anymore. There were times when you were excited about your faith, when you grew and you drank it all in and you were excited, learning everything you could about God. But right now, those times seem like a distant memory. Something, somewhere along the line, robbed you of that simple faith that you had. You're stuck in a rut. You want to move forward, but you're just riddled with doubts. It's complicated. Maybe you were hurt a while back by somebody or some church. Somebody said something to you, said something about you. Something happened. You got burned. And whatever the action was, it sent you down a path and in a lot of different directions with your pain. You're here today, and in this moment, you're ready to start that journey back to a strong relationship with God and investigating a faith community. But in the same moment, you're terrified to trust again. It's complicated. Living a double life, that's something you never thought you'd do, but maybe that's where you are today. Pray, you read your Bible, you come to church, but you know there's something in your lifestyle that's completely contradictory to your faith. You're tired, you're worn out, but you keep giving in to this same temptation that's plagued you for a long time. And if people really knew that that was in your life, they'd be baffled. Heck, you're baffled. You don't know what to do to be done with that. It's complicated. Maybe your connection with God is more like a married couple who married for a long time. They just don't go out anymore. They don't communicate much anymore, but they live together in the same house like a divorced couple who just share a space. Contract is still in place. The duties are still performed. But deep down, you know that you were made for more than this complicated God wants God hungers for you to update your status from it's complicated to a devoted marriage not the kind of a marriage that fits the worst stereotype that you can think of of sitcoms or movies where one person cringes at a commitment and the other one 
is seeking desperately to tie them down, but the kind of a commitment that brings new life and renewed hope. God wants that for you. He wants more than half-hearted dating. He's proposing something else. He's proposing an exclusive commitment that is life-changing. It may be complicated in your life right now, but it doesn't have to be. His love and his grace can pull you through anything that you're facing. You can have a passionate, personal relationship with God, the creator of the universe. That's what he's proposing to you right now. So go ahead. Update your status.